Greetings, I'm Joseph Shapiro, and this is my podcast, Managed to Engage, a special kind of edition, which I've been meaning to do, and I've become somehow bored with using excerpts from my online courses as podcast episodes. I'm not sure why it is, but um, I just follow my intuition, so I'm going to do something different. And recently I sent out a blog entitled, How Do You Protect Yourself From Change? And I thought it would be interesting to read it and expand upon it as I'm so moved to help people who don't have the five minutes to read something or prefer to listen. I totally get it in this day and age where there's so much information and so much going on. We like to multitask and There's a lot of good things about multitasking, for example, listening to podcasts while mowing the lawn or weeding or doing other things that don't require much thought. Fully support that. Some things actually require thinking, though, and uh, should not be combined together, but that's a whole other rabbit hole I won't go down. So, yeah, so I'm just going to read this blog, uh, not word for word necessarily, because I'm going to uh, do some sidebars on it, I'm sure. It's something I've been thinking a lot about, and before I actually start reading it, well, I'll just start reading it. And I'm doing this in one take, if you haven't noticed, because that's just how I roll. So it begins, we all have unconscious protectors, and they resist change. So it's useful to track the expression of that resistance to follow it back to the fear at its root. I'll use the term coaching here, but this applies to all forms of inner work that threaten the unconscious's grip on the status quo. That includes therapy, spiritual practice, etc. We are all flawed and afraid, whether we realize it or not. This model isn't about judgment. It shines a light on what is not working so we can get what we say we want. Everyone exhibits aspects of these styles and must outwork them with love and curiosity to reach fulfillment. Look for your primary style because not committing to one is a common deflection from being identified. So uh, when I read it out loud, it's um, denser than I remember when I wrote it. And I'll go on to talk about the styles in a moment and and read from the article. But before I do, I want to just talk about the paradigmatic background for this. There are a number of models in the world. None of them, I would say, are very popular. and, And that's exactly what I want to address in a moment. Um, But there are a number of psychotherapeutic models, I would say, almost exclusively, that have this idea that there is a you pretending to be you that isn't you. And the paradigm that I subscribe to is called identity, and the subset of identity is the emotional body enlightenment paradigm uh, with its version of what a protector is. Uh, and that's not very well known as a paradigm. There is a more well-known one, uh, although still far from mainstream, a therapeutic paradigm called internal family systems, also called IFS, that is used by a fair amount of mainstream therapists. It's definitely not uh, getting taught to psychiatrists as far as I know, and it's not in LCSW programs or things like that, but it is considered a um, more progressive kind of uh, uh, modality. Uh, Voice dialogue therapy, which I don't hear much about anymore, but that goes 
at least back to the 70s and 80s, uh, uses the idea of a protector. And then in uh, models that have some amount of Zen in them, whether it be landmark education, not commonly appreciated as having uh, a Zen in it, but it does. Um, and any model that uses the word ego, people will use ego to mean a lot of different things, but um, the ego is a kind of protector. Uh, it depends on how it's defined. But again, what I'm trying to get at here is this is not a super new idea. The way I come at it, which is uh, coming from the paradigm of identity, has a pretty rigorous, it's the most rigorous application of or treatment of protectors that I know because identity would assert that the protector is largely running your life and on average is responsible for about 70% of your behavior. So this goes back to, I wrote about this recently when Freud in 1915 wrote the paper, The Unconscious. He asked what I would assert is the most important question ever asked uh, in the history of humanity. And that is, how do you make the unconscious conscious? As far as I know, and I studied Freud in college, so I read a lot of his work, I don't remember him ever defining, and I'm pretty sure he did not, uh, define how much of our unconscious is running our life. Uh, and this would be widely debated among you know therapists if you all ask them. But any therapist, I think, worth their salt would agree that there are certainly moments where it's entirely running your life. I mean, that's what being strongly triggered means. It means that you're, quote, out of control and something, you know, something from your past is in your present and you're coming from that place. So in those moments, it's really not difficult to make an argument that that's a way in which the unconscious is running your life. What most paradigms do not do, however, is go from the acute kind of trigger moments to the more chronic larger behaviors, um, which are harder to pin down, not in an acute trigger stress moment, but what about the mates we choose, the jobs we choose, the political ideologies we choose, the identities we choose. This, the way it looks to me, is just as much subject to our unconscious drivers as anything and everything else. So. Uh, I didn't talk about that in this article. I wanted to go straight to the styles and make it a four or five minute read. But the background is important. It's important because there are so many paradigms on this planet that offer to help you, and all of them offer some amount of help. However, I would assert if there's if part of that model does not include differentiating from the you that you think you are but are not, then the help that you get is inevitably going to be help for the protector, i.e. the person pretending to be you that is not you is the one seeking improvement very, very often and the one receiving that, that improvement. And this is not commonly appreciated. That's a constructive approach. I talk about this a lot. If you've been listening to this podcast for a while, you've probably heard me talk about it, but it bears reviewing. 99% of the models on our planet are constructive approaches. 
What I mean by that is not that they're helpful because everything is helpful, some things more than others, but everything does something. What I mean by constructive, I mean it's additive. It's adding to the you that you already think that you are. It does not challenge the you that you think you are. It largely accepts this is you, this is who you accept yourself to be, and we're going to help that you get whatever you want. And that's normally not questioned a whole lot. A subtractive or deconstructive approach doesn't seek to help the you that you think you are. It helps to carve away, like creating a statue, like that's a good metaphor, actually, that I just made up. Rather than building a building, which there's nothing there, and then you build a building, that's constructive. Sculpting, if you start with a block of granite and then carve away everything that is not the statue that you're creating, that's subtractive. That's deconstructive, right? You're taking away in order to reveal something, not adding something. And they both have their places, right? Building a building by carving something out of a giant solid piece of stone or wood or whatever would be, first of all, incredibly impressive. I don't know if anybody's done that on a kind of scale. That would be cool. Um, a cave is an example of that. Somebody burrows or something, you know, like an animal burrows something. They're subtracting their way to creating a domicile. Um, but uh, that's generally not how we do things as humans. We like to build things and we're very good at it. And that's cool. But for personal development, constructive approaches have limits. It depends on your paradigmatic assumptions, but the paradigmatic assumption I'm coming from, which again comes from identity, is that there is an essential you, and it's good. And you'd be amazed how many paradigms actually don't agree with that. Christianity, Judaism, Islam, Hinduism, Buddhism, those are the big five in our world. None of them actually see, in the mainstream forms of those uh, religions and spiritualities, none of them actually see that there's an essential good human being. They don't come from that place. They all have basically versions of original sin. In Islam, it's kind of vague. It's pride. Um, Judaism, it's even uh, vaguer. But um, in the Old Testament, I was actually just listening to Bill Maher this morning, and David Mamet, the playwright, was talking about Judaism, and he literally was saying, we, we're, we can't be trusted. Uh, he didn't say we're not essentially good, but he did say we're not, we're, we can't be trusted. And the, where Judaism comes from is there's a set of the Old Testament. There's a set of rules. You can't be trusted as a human being to do what's right, so here's a set of rules to follow so that you can do the right thing. That's wholly different markedly different from saying that you essentially as a human being have deep abiding goodness in you and when that goodness is actually active and in expression you will choose to do the right thing and you don't need rules you'll just know it's completely different but in a phase of our species when we're disconnected from that essence which has been basically heretofore, since the dawn of civilization, if you're disconnected from that good essence, then yes, we need rules in order to get along with each other. And it's not that some rules wouldn't be useful. It's just the outside in, here are the rules and here's how you're supposed to live because you essentially can't be trusted. So the rules are more important than your innermost instincts 
and emotions and beingness, it's an outside-in orientation. And look around, it doesn't work. I mean, how many minutes of the day are the rules of any society being broken? So they can't even follow them. Why can't they follow them? Because the whole system doesn't work. It's a constructive system that starts with, you're essentially bad, even though they wouldn't say that, but they imply in, in different ways, depending. In Christianity, they flat out say, with original sin, you're essentially bad. And the best you can do is revel and apologize for that badness, and then you're saved. And most of the religions have some version of that in um Buddhism, it's original illusion. In Hinduism, it's original ignorance. But the, they all come from a, there's something essentially bad with you, not there's something essentially good with you. So where this comes from, I I'm, I'm said, said all that so I can say this, where this essentially comes from is a lack of appreciation for and understanding of the protector, the false you that you had to become in order to survive your childhood when your good essence couldn't land all the way with your parents, it had to be repressed. And this is straight teaching right out of identity's paradigm. Uh, and there are other paradigms that say something similar. Diamond Heart uh, as a paradigm says something similar. Um, trying to think of another. I think Waking Down says something similar as well. But this idea that there's some essential goodness in us that is there that we can't be and then must reclaim. You see that in some of the less mainstream paradigms. But in most of the mainstream paradigms, I'd say all of them, there's this implicit essential badness. But that implicit essential badness is actually about not the essence of your protector, actually. It's about the behavior of the protector. It's what we have to do or had to do in order to survive. So reframing all of the quote-unquote bad behavior or mischievous behavior in people, they're always at the very essential roots, well-intended, well-intended. Uh, Adolf Hitler literally thought he was doing God's work. He wrote, wrote that in Mein Kampf. The uh, American uh, colonists who killed between 10 and 50 million Native Americans, depending on the source, they were uh, operating with manifest destiny. Again, thought they were doing God's work. Holy wars, pogroms. Um, the holy wars, both on the Catholic side and also on the Muslim side. All of those people who died, that was in the name of God. Well, the name of God is like, you know, one of the highest forms of service that a human being can come up with, according to those paradigms. So those are well intended. So this... The, the problem is we have this idea of good and evil, which is very old, and it's actually a smokescreen from actually looking at core motives and how they can be, well, distorted, confused. So what if all negative actions in human beings come from misguided but positive intentions to protect? to protect. So that's the sort of metaphysical background for the protector idea. And again, it's not just in identity, it's internal internal family systems. Um, 
Landmark Education even has a version of it when they talk about rackets. They don't actually differentiate apart, but they differentiate behaviors in terms of like, okay, you're doing this and it has this intention, but this is what it's really doing. And, you know, they do a lot of examination of that kind of stuff. So what this article is about is the different styles of protectors. And I am asserting, as these paradigms that I've been talking about assert, the ones that have protectors in them, everybody has one. Everybody has one. And they run your life for better and for worse. And before I start reading this, is there anything else I want to say? I don't think so. I think that was my preamble. Okay, so first up uh, is the avoider. Avoiders don't usually do assignments or do them late slash poorly. They're slow to schedule meetings, show up late, reschedule often, and energetically drag their feet. If a friend, colleague, or especially their boss got them into coaching, this is especially likely. Avoiders lack sufficient hunger for what they want and aren't willing, are not willing, aren't willing, to subject themselves to the necessary discomfort to get the rewards that they seek. They fundamentally don't see the work as in their self-interest and attempt to care for themselves by avoiding what's difficult, but in the long run, it isn't really care. The avoider is really common. I'm off script now here. Um, the uh, avoider is probably one of the most common ones. And uh, one of the clues for where it comes from is in that first line, avoiders don't usually do assignments. And there's a lot of school conditioning that comes into play here. Um, the, 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 it doesn't take a very smart kid, and it usually starts around 11 or 12, when children realize and like, begin to actually experience that the curriculum in their school is not going to help them as an adult. They just realize that it's largely useless and they start to drag their feet because they, they're not experiencing, you know, they're basically spending like a full-time job 40 hours a week between class time and homework and commute time. That's like a full-time job and they're realizing that this isn't actually serving them while everyone around them is pretending that it does and imposes that on them and they're supposed to pretend too. And this is one of the societal conditionings of the avoider. But even before that, it happens where our parents unconsciously expect us to perform for them. You know, as early as holding shiny objects in front of infants and expecting them to track. And when the infant turns away, which is their way of saying, that's enough, I'm getting overwhelmed, the parents coming from the parent's need, track the child's attention and keep dangling the thing because the parent's needs are being communicated as being more important than the child. That's abuse. That's abuse and rarely appreciated as such. And what it does is it makes the parent's needs, the adult's needs, the world's needs more important than the child's. And then that very often creates a pushback from the child on a very subtle but core emotive level of, um, you know, you, you want something from me, you're going to take something from me, and I have to pull away, hide something, retreat in order to preserve my energy, my, my very soul. So the uh, avoider is a really common uh, issue in our world. I would also add one of the reasons it's really common is because we're largely trained to, in the value of altruism that we're supposed to make other more important than ourselves. And it's December 2nd, uh, 2023, as I record this. We are now in the 
season of giving and um this is where multiple times a day you will hear the uh you know various versions of the societal bromide as ayn rand used to uh, call it uh, giving is more uh, important than receiving which when you think about it just for one moment under the subject of uh deconstructing paradigms in moments so but every time you give someone else has to receive right so for every giving there's a receiving but the giving is better than the receiving (laughs) aren't they always equal every giving creates a receiving so if receiving was really bad then you wouldn't give because the giving causes a reception doesn't it meaning you're causing that it's absurd this is bumper sticker level wisdom for unsophisticated people who just don't appreciate uh, how quickly you can take that apart. Uh, why does that exist and what's the truth in it? Well, because the, because of the nature of protectors, going back thousands and thousands of years, protectors have unmet needs that they're sort of guarding over. And so very often their compensational strategy will be unhealthily self-interested, which is what we call selfish. And that unhealthy self-interest tends to step on the toes of other people. But then here's a really great example of an important fork in the road. Okay, so we observe that people can be unhealthily self-interested. So now we've got two basic options. You can investigate and get to the core of why the individual is unhealthily self-interested such that they're stepping on the toes of other people and not creating win-wins. Or that would be deconstructive, right? Subtractive, like I said before. Or you can layer on top of that constructively a set of altruistic values and ideal giving behaviors. You see? Which would you rather do? Which is easier? The painful investigation of exploring how your dependent needs were not met as a child creating a hole in you that you can never fill. So you keep having to take, take, take via greed and you can never get enough because it doesn't really nourish you. But looking into that and feeling all of the the invasion feelings and empty feelings and lonely feelings from childhood that are still there, or you leave all that alone and just construct on top of it a set of altruistic behaviors to try to balance it out, which ultimately doesn't work. It just creates a falser version of you where you're coming from a set of outer standards and outer expectations that don't actually match the inner core feeling. But you see, if that inner core feeling, if if there's already an assumption that the inner is bad at essence, the inner is originally sin, the inner is uh, originally selfish, it's originally illusory. If you already have an assumption that that inner is bad, then there's no point in going to look looking for the essential goodness, you see. There's, there's not an assumption that there is an essentially good, self-interested, healthily so, healthily self-interested individual there who can give and receive in a balanced way, in a harmonious way. Most paradigms wouldn't admit this, but they actually assume that that's impossible. That's why it makes sense to layer on top transcendent behaviors, altruistic behaviors, giving behaviors, putting other people's needs ahead of your own behaviors, all of that is on top, layered on top literally of an a priori assumption that we're essentially bad. 
Okay, I didn't realize I had so much to say about that. That's the avoider. Let's go on to what I call the approach avoider. Whereas avoiders are consistent, the approach avoider demonstrates periods of strong engagement followed by avoidance, then back to engagement. When coaching begins to work, the fear of change arises and drives the client away in order to regroup and prevent change from sticking. The cycle of approach and avoidance gives the client the feeling that they are on track without the real risk of change as the avoidance causes momentum to be lost and the work returns to square one. They attempt to care for themselves by backing off when things get too intense, but that's actually when they need to lean in. And that last line, I'm off script again, in case you're following along with the blog, I'll put a link in the show notes. Um, that's a key thing because with all of these, you want to honor the essential truth. Uh, They attempt to care for themselves by backing off when things get too intense, but that's when they need to lean in. So for the approach avoider, they'll be very engaged and then disappear when things start to get uncomfortable. The motive for that, it's important to understand, the motive for that is a, it's in essence, it's self-care, but in expression, it's misguided. Just how, you know, if you leave a eight-year-old to their devices, they'll have chocolate cake for breakfast, lunch, and dinner, perhaps, and they don't necessarily want to eat their broccoli. They have to sort of learn to do something that's a little bit uncomfortable and delay gratification. Children are notorious for not being able to delay uh, gratification. And if you don't know about the marshmallow test, you should just uh, look for that on YouTube. It's a fascinating experiment that went uh, that goes way back to, I believe, the 60s or 70s. And uh, can be repeated many times today. Children cannot delay gratification. Now, interesting sidebar here, a child who actually, and this is very theoretical, of course, but if a child were to theoretically get 100.00% of their childhood needs met, would they still have difficulty pushing off the, um, the desired effect of uh, delaying gratification? What if the inability to delay gratification comes from children who are, to use a pun with eating marshmallows, starving uh, at the level of emotional needs. This is the same way the only reason people overeat is because they're trying to fill an an emotional hole. So it could be that it's not actually intrinsic to children that, um, I mean, it does require some reasoning, right? So if you tell a 18-month-old that uh, if uh, uh, here's this one marshmallow, but if you don't eat it for 15 minutes, I'll come back and give you another marshmallow. That's the experiment that they do. Uh, I don't know when children start to get a sense of time that way, but I doubt an 18-month-old could even follow that, right? So they have to have language. They have to have. They have to understand time in a basic way. They have to know, have a sense of how long 15 minutes is. So there's I mean, it would be interesting to do that with a totally healthy kid at, you know, every six months and see what happens. But we don't have totally healthy kids yet in our society. Anyway, that's a, a long way around talking about this one. But I did want to make sure to highlight that piece about um, the the goodness of the intention. So with avoiders and approach avoiders, too, they're trying to take care of themselves. They just don't realize that it's not working. Next one, this is the third one I call the fan. The fan loves to get excited about change but keeps a distance further than the avoider. I've encountered a number of people in my career who are huge fans of my work. By the way, if you didn't know, fan is short for fanatic. I never, uh, I didn't learn that until about, I don't know, 10 years ago. 
uh, a fanatic, which has dubious uh, definitions depending on the usage. Uh, huge fans of my work regularly refer clients to me, but have never been clients themselves. This is a fascinating uh, phenomenon that I see a couple times a year. These people want to be adjacent to change, but not actually do it themselves to get a kind of contact high. They love the thrill of inspiration and can't move past it to application. They can become clients, but are typically immune to accountability or emotional discomfort and are there only to be inspired and to feel good. This usually, as you can imagine, doesn't last very long. These people are fun-loving, energetic, and alive people, but they have very uh, strong difficulty being sober. If you are familiar, I'm off script now, if you are familiar with the Enneagram personality typing system, if you're not, I absolutely recommend reading one to a dozen books about it. Uh, it's something that I use very often, and it's the best personality typing system on the planet. Uh, this, this, The fan is usually a seven. Uh, not always, but usually a seven. Sevens just love to be excited about being excited about being excited. And one of their key words is sobriety. Okay, so let's move on to the next one I call the analyst. The analyst overly mentalizes the process with, it's the process of change. Uh, the analyst overly mentalizes the process with the assumption that mere understanding creates change. They understand their way through coaching or therapy or whatever it is. Unfortunately, it doesn't work. They appear very engaged, take lots of notes, but don't feel what they learn, which prevents embodiment. And they also don't apply what they learn with new actions. They're inspired by new ways of looking at things, but can't bridge new understandings into new actions because their disconnection from their feelings allows those feelings to unconsciously make their decisions. In other words, if you're not connected to your uh, emotions, they will run your life. And this is the, uh, the essential assumption that the analyst makes is that they can logic their way through their life and set aside or ignore or pretend they don't even have an emotional world. Unfortunately, that's just not how it is. So um, the, the seduction of it is that it can and does work a little bit, but you run into a limit really quickly because uh, as identity says, we're largely emotional beings and then uh, me mental beings second. And by the way, this idea, little sidebar here, and I'll finish this one. Um, it's amazing to me, you know, when I first was an employee at Emith about 20 years ago, I fell in love with uh, marketing, the discipline of it, not advertising, but the discipline of marketing, which has taught us and more money has been put into this than psychology, that human beings make purchasing decisions emotionally first and then justify the decision rationally second. Like sine qua non, no debate, demonstrated many times, study after study after study, purchasing decisions are made emotionally first and mentally second. Those That emotional decision is almost always unconscious, however, it's an unconscious emotional decision. And then it's justified. It has to get stamped by the rational mind. But the decision is first made uh, emotionally. And when I read this, I, my first thought was like, well, if human beings make purchases, purchasing decisions this way, why would they make any other decision in any other way? Choosing jobs, choosing mates, 
choosing hobbies, choosing what to do on a Sunday morning. These are all, we make decisions emotionally first and then rationally second. They're both involved, but the initial oomph, the, the initial urge is an emotional one. And this is why good advertising appeals on an emotional level. It has to. It can't just be the data and the facts. Those just um, finalize the, the emotional decision that was already made. So this is important because the analyst is t basically testing out a paradigm that their emotions don't drive their actions. And unfortunately, it's just not true. If it were true, we would live in a very different world where people could, you know, follow rules and logic and critical thinking and we would all get along because killing someone in order to make a point is illogical. It doesn't change anyone's minds. And yet we're still doing that every day in this world. Okay, back to the article. Uh, yes, so they're inspired by new ways of looking at things, but can't bridge new understandings into new actions because their disconnection from their feelings allows those feelings to unconsciously make their decisions. They assume their understanding must be lacking and pursue greater knowledge rather than having curiosity about what exactly happened. And there's constructive versus deconstructive. Let me read that again. They assume their understanding must be lacking and pursue greater knowledge, constructive, rather than having curiosity about what exactly happened and what they're afraid of. That would be deconstructive. Analysts are always brilliant people who don't yet realize that the mind isn't a tool for every situation. Okay, next one. The director... The director dominates session time by ensuring the agenda is theirs. They redirect uncomfortable questions or topics back to safe talking points like a politician stays on message. Their unconscious need to be in control stops them from surrendering to the fact that real change isn't on their terms. I should say on anyone's terms, but uh, definitely not on the director's terms. They're confident that they don't know what they need. I'm sorry. They're confident that they know what they need, but they actually don't and cannot accept that someone else could know them better than they know themselves. That's an important thing with change in general. It's not that someone always knows better than you know yourself. That would be ridiculous and a call to sell out on your own self-authority. But if you've lived longer than 20 or 25 years, you've probably realized and maybe not completely surrendered to the fact that sometimes people just know you better then you know yourself. And the director has the biggest issue with this. As such, I'm back to the article now, they don't seek help so much as they seek an audience for their own greatness, or their own brilliance, their own intelligence. They're likely to see the coach only as a sounding board because of their unconscious and flawed assumption that they can solve all of their own problems. Directors are strong people and usually natural leaders who aren't used to being the biggest person in the room. Uh, typically, back to the Enneagram, if you know it, uh, eights, almost always directors. Fours can be directors. Um, they also can be indulgers, which we'll get to in a, a minute or two here. Um, ones can be directors. Threes can be directors. The younger types, the more um, the uh, young types, will typically be the ones who create protectors as such. Okay, moving on, the mouse. The mouse is demure, polite, attentive, and somewhat withdrawn. Uh, not necessarily all of those things, but usually a mixture of them. They are sensitive but not vulnerable. Important distinction. They seductively caretake the coach to give the appearance of engagement, 
kvel about how wonderful the work is. I looked for an alternative word than kvel because I generally try not to use Yiddish as I don't really identify with my uh, Jewish heritage. But interestingly, there's not, there's not a good synonym for kvel. So they kvel about how wonderful the uh, work is and how much they respect their coach. But this is an unconscious ruse to not go deep and or be held accountable. It's subtle, but it's tricky. And it's tricky. Coaches often feel they have to pull teeth to get the mouse to bring topics that are good grist for the mill. The mouse is fundamentally a people pleaser to get attention off of themselves in order to cover their own feelings of unworth. They often have reservations about the coaching process, but won't reveal them. That's important. They are inevitably very caring people, which is the vehicle by which they deflect attention onto others. Yeah, they're other-oriented, and as such, Enneagram types that are other-oriented, uh, those three are two, six, and nine. Those are the other-oriented types, so they're the most likely uh, to be the mice, but not always. It could be fours um, as well, but usually the, we're talking about two sixes and nines, not counterphobic sixes, though. The indulger. The indulger dominates session time like the director, but with superficial feelings rather than mind or willfulness. Playing victim is the most common way they prevent real change from happening by using session time to unproductively vent rather than dig deeper into issues in themselves. Other superficial feelings like guilt, depression, dread, judgment, and rage may be employed. There's nothing wrong with these feelings and giving them the time that they need, but they must be followed to their deepest roots for productive results. The indulger unconsciously fills the space with these superficial feelings, along with an overriding need to be validated in order to prevent progress. They honor their feelings and cannot repress them, which is great, but it makes them uh, that makes them emotionally honest. But this is different from productive vulnerability and typically lacks meta perspective, causing the indulger to become their feelings so that they can't resolve. And uh, one of my favorite expressions that I got from my old Zen coach, you can't drink the soup if your face is in it. I guess you could probably for a little while before you had to breathe. <laughs> Be an interesting thing to try, but don't try it. Don't try this at home, folks, with soup that's very hot. But if the soup is like a cold gazpacho, I used to make that stuff, gazpacho. You could try it with that, perhaps. You can drink a little bit of soup before you start to asphyxiate. Okay, uh, last one. Now, this one I wrote after the fact. I did a presentation to my Clear and Open uh, member group, which meets every Thursday at uh, 11 Pacific. Wait, let me advertise that correctly. If you want to join the, uh, yeah, this would be like where I would co go to a planned spot and have a clever thing to say. But uh, instead, I'm going to make it up on the spot. The member webcast uh, is every Thursday at 1130 uh, Pacific time. And actually in our last session, we talked about this very article and uh, the nature of how protectors work and how to find your protector. And uh, actually did some really good work with one very brave individual who was volunteering their um, protector behaviors for examination. And it's a small group. It's only about six or eight people at the moment, but we, we get some good stuff done. And if you want to join that, you can go to courses.clearandopen.com. Again, that's courses.clearandopen.com and look for Dojo membership there. Uh, we're currently in the winter quarter 2023 course. Uh, 
Okay, so let's finish up. So anyway, uh, what emerged in that uh, course was, uh, or in that uh, class, was that there was one that was missing that I hadn't thought of. And I went back and forth about whether this deserves their own type. Um, I'm talking about the spiritual bypasser. And, you know, you could say spiritual bypassing bypassing is a subset of avoiding, and um, or it could be the others as well, but usually it's an avoidance tactic. But I decided to give it the, um, the recognition of having one of its own um, archetypal personas here, because some people actually identify so much with spiritual bypassing that it's really like becomes their personality. Um, you don't come across them very often, but in uh, so, so-called spiritual places like Ashland, Oregon, Sedona, uh, Arizona, um, Asheville, North Carolina, Shasta in California, uh, and here uh, where I live on Maui, especially in uh, Haiku um, and Makawao, there were these sort of pockets of new age um, spiritualists. And, you know, I could do a whole podcast just on what new age spirituality actually is versus what people think it is it, it in short it's it's basically a sort of greatest hits feel good aggregation of the hippie paradigm hindu paradigm various aspects of self-empowerment paradigms uh, byron katie's work very superficial um, aspects of zen and buddhism and it's basically it's um uh, largely Eastern Dharma, but not only Eastern Dharma. It's it's um, self-improvement Dharma seen through a hippie lens, so it takes all the feel-good aspects of them and then cobbles it together into a paradigm. Uh, so accountability, strongly discouraged. You won't find it there. Real Zen inquiry, you won't find it there. Um, actual meditation, the way it was originally taught by the Buddha, um, which is about as you've heard in my other podcast, perhaps, and see my course, uh, Meditation for Awakening, and also the other online course, Inquiry for Awakening. Real meditation and inquiry is about trying to find the meditator and experiencing that it cannot be found. It is a deconstructive process. It is not about creating a transcendent experience or relaxing or clearing your mind. Those are all new age hippie uh, uh, misinterpretations of it that turn it into a feel-good constructive paradigm rather than a deconstructive search for truth. Okay. I said I wasn't going to talk about New Age stuff, and then I did. Okay. Okay, so last, spiritual bypassing or the spiritual bypasser. Spiritual bypassing is, wait for it, this is a rigorous definition here, it's the use of spiritual truths and or states of consciousness to avoid personal issues. If somebody, if someone obviously wrongs you, you confront them, and rather than take responsibility, they encourage you to let it go, which is Eastern Dharma, uh, mainstream Eastern Dharma, or appeal to the virtue of forgiveness, which is mainstream Christianity. These are examples of spiritual bypassing. Real spirituality includes the domain of personal responsibility, but paradigms that see spiritual realms as inherently better or realer than the human domain will enable spiritual bypassing in their adherence. Because bypassing is based in powerful spiritual truths, it makes for a sophisticated and powerful defense mechanism, especially when calling it out requires challenging the bypassers' values, which is a societal taboo. 
In other words, um, if someone were to, someone says, you know, just let it, you know, you, you know, they run over your foot with their car and you go, ow, how come you weren't paying attention to me? And they say, hey, just let it go. And you go, don't impose your mainstream distorted Buddhist points of view on me. My, my, my foot hurts. Um, that would be considered um, challenging their value systems. That's what you're doing. And in the, at least in the states where we have this, the First Amendment and the freedom of religion, um, that is, uh, has been interpreted to mean that uh, values are sacrosanct and should not be challenged. But that's different than everyone has the freedom to believe and subscribe to whatever values they want. That doesn't mean they're immune to criticism. Uh, so that, that we could do a whole podcast just on that one, misinterpretation of the, of the uh, First Amendment. Man, it'd be great if we could rewrite the Bill of Rights with some more metaphysical rigor, um, especially the Second Amendment, um, which is a whole other story. Uh, the right to bear arms in a state militia, it says. So if you're in a state militia, you got to have a gun. Uh, as far as I know, there's no more state militias, right? <laughs> uh, or at least there's the Army Reserve. There's reserve troops. But So why is it that people who are not a militia get to have guns? Hmm. When did that happen? Yeah. Okay, so back to the, uh, back to the uh, uh, bypassing. Bypassing is, and by the way, I'm not against gun, gun ownership um, before I get castigated for that. I'm just talking about what, how the Second Amendment was actually written and how it should be rewritten if we think everyone should have guns. There should just be coherence there. Um, okay, uh, so I was talking about societal taboo. Bypassing is usually of occasional usage by other core styles. I said that in the beginning. It's usually the avoider. But in more pronounced cases can present as a person identified with a disinhabitation of their humanity. Uh, I'm sorry, there's a missing word here. I just noticed. With a disinhabitation of their humanity and floating off the bottom three chakras. This is observable by a starry-eyed look a high degree of self-control, transcendence, altruism, and or an absence of strong emotions, which are rewarded in many spiritual communities as an expression of spiritual attainment, which is to some degree true. But the attainment, in such cases, is unintegrated with their humanity and distances the individual from their authentic self, causing stagnative or even destructive behavior. This is why so many spiritually attained teachers, for example, have sex with their students, which is not okay, objectively, I would assert. Their protector, in these cases, uses real spiritual attainment to serve people, but also as a tool for emotional repression, which causes wound-based behavior, like abusing your power and having sex with a student. Spiritual bypassing is literally the mechanism by which an individual can be spiritually attained but emotionally immature, which is justified by many spiritual paradigms that see the personal domain as either illusory or a means to get to heaven, paradise, escape the wheel of rebirth, etc. So again, um, if you're not uh, hanging out with New Age spiritualists, you may uh, have never met a spiritual bypasser, um, but they are out there. And if you go to a kirtan um, or a uh, ashram or uh, you know some other uh, a new age spiritual potluck or something you're likely to meet lots of people who are um, spiritually bypassing but they tend not to be evenly distributed amongst our population so then the article goes on to ask the provocative question so what's your style 
be honest. And if you're curious about me, I'm a recovering analyst, uh, and that's something I work on at least once a week in very conscious ways, usually more like every day. Uh, these, the, the, whatever your protector style is, you're going to be able to chip away at it, but it's going to be likely something that uh, it leaves a kind of echo. So it can change, but it's always going to be something you have to watch for, at least so far in, in the very deep work that I do, um, that seems to be the case. And then the question, how does a mature person relate to change then without any of these unconscious styles at play? And that's what we talked about, um, began to talk about last Thursday, and I think we'll be continuing that conversation this Thursday. So if you're interested in identifying your style and giving, getting some specific things to do to change it, then consider becoming a Clear and Open Dojo member. These are the kinds of things we talk about. Uh, it, uh, it, can, it can go into group training and group teaching territory. I do give people assignments. And uh, if people are not avoiders, then they generally do them. And then the avoiders, of course, are encouraged to do them even more. Uh, so again, with the course I'm doing right now and for the foreseeable future, there is no specific topic. We're just going with what comes up. Uh, and uh, this is something that came up. So that's what we'll be talking about for a while. I hope you enjoyed this, and if you want to read the blog, again, look for the link in the show notes, or you can find it at clearandopen.com. Thanks for listening or watching if you're on YouTube.